I'm the Associate Dean for the College of Education and Human Development at the mighty University of New Orleans. There you go. No privateers. I'm also the CEO of the Capital One UNO Charter Network. And what that all means is I, I essentially run four charter schools. Wow. And what brought me to this dance, uh, my area of expertise is actually immigrant educational rights. Uh, my, I, I study, the, in general, the, the question, should undocumented immigrants receive financial aid? Wow. And I look at it from the, the perspective of membership. What does it mean to be a member and what rights are associated with the various levels of membership? So I will be leading this uh, esteemed panel of the discussants. Um, immediate to my left is Jamie Winders, and she is an urban geographer in the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. Her research focuses on the changing geographies and racial politics of immigration in the U.S. and the emergence of southern cities as a popular immigrant destination. Right to her left is Laura Lopez-Sanders. <laughs> Laura Lopez-Sanders is a, is a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology and a doctoral fellow at Stanford University. Her current research focuses on Latino immigrant incorporation and its impact on race and ethnic relations in new immigrant destinations. To her left is Anita Drever, and she is an immigration scholar as well as a policy analyst and program evaluator at the University of Wyoming. Previously, Dr. Drever was a tenured associate professor of geography at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville and a visiting scholar at the German Institute for Economic Research in Berlin. So please give our panelists <laughs> a warm welcome. When we're talking about social justice and, and and the uh, Latino's impact on, on social justice, I think that, that has something to do with the distribution of, of uh, resources equally uh, among people and the impact of a, a new population, so to speak. But know that uh, social justice is something that many cultures, many areas um, deal with. So I wanted to say, you know, when you heard you're, you're going to talk about uh, the um, Latinos and social justice. What what came to mind initially uh, when you heard that? And I'll have Laura uh, Laura answer that in the center. Well, one of the things that um, the idea of impact that that comes to mind is the fact that in, there is there are mechanisms in the opportunity structure that we need to consider. I mean, we have been talking about larger forces, and um, and I think that. We also have to focus a little bit more in what is, what are some of the in, inherent mechanisms that account for the opportunities for different groups, so for one group uh, versus another. Um, and my research in particular, I look at how hiring practices affect the opportunities of African Americans with respect to the opportunities of immigrant workers. Um, and, and I think that um, it's something that we cannot uh, ignore when we're talking about social justice, that uh, there are larger forces, but also, also there are micro elements that influence where one group is going to end up in the socioeconomic That's system. a good segue, because I believe um, Jamie has uh, written a tremendous work on looking at some of these macro issues, but she's also good mm -hmm. at uh, um, whittling it down and in, 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 in getting how it impacts folks 
at a very basic level. Can you talk, particularly in New Orleans, and remember, this is the home of Plessy v. Ferguson, right? And so it set this larger context around this uh, black-white paradigm, right? And so I wanted to talk to you, because you've uh, written mm -hmm. somewhat, and, and, and you use um, George Sanchez um, mm -hmm. to frame this issue. And he essentially says that um, there are two con constructs that sort of form our, our American community or our conceptualization of an American community, and that would be the, the idea of a, a country of immigrants or a community of immigrants, and then the other is that black and white mm -hmm. stru struggle. So can you just give us an overarching, those major themes that sort of guide our thinking on how we perceive ourselves in this country and our role in social justice and activism? How we as academics are sort of, or, or, um, sort of how these issues society. are playing out in the South. Uh, I would say let's take a, a crack at the second. At the second? Yeah, right. Well, I mean, one of the things when you think about, um, and most of my work has looked at, at sort of the racial politics and politics of immigration to the South, and it's where those two constructs are sort of coming together in a way that we haven't seen, where the whole idea of the of the U.S. as a nation of immigrants and the South as the place that, that if you want to think race in a U.S. context, you think the South. The, the region and race are so tightly riveted together. What does it mean when these two things come together? How are racial formations changing? How does it impact what happens when this, this sort of new mix is happening in the context of neoliberal rollbacks where the pie is getting smaller and smaller? You have more groups coming together trying to access these resources. But when we think about these questions of race and racism and social justice, you know, much of what we've talked about has been at this sort of broad brush scale of, we, you talked about sort of deconstructing these categories, this group thinks this and this group thinks that. But we're not only talking about this at the level of public discourse. When we think about how we come to understand race, how we come to understand cultural belonging, citizenship, it's not just what we read in the papers, how community leaders represent it. It's also what happens in your neighborhood across the street. It's what happens in your schools. It's what happens at the health clinic. It's what happens when you go to the grocery store. And we live our lives sort of through these social spaces, and it's, it's within them and in relation to these other kind of broader processes that we accumulate these ideas about race. And it's out of, as geographers, we think about different spaces and skills, and it's out of that mix that notions of social justice, of racial progress, all of these things come out as we're sort of trying to understand this kind of impact between these two different constructs of what the nation looks like and what kinds of political projects would come out where we can bring these groups together. Now, you mentioned something I want to draw on Anita's work, because it is peculiar, you point out in some of your writings that um, in the South, where you have this historical context, no unions, right, mm -hmm. low wages, yes. Latinos are coming in mass to the South. Talk about that. Why? Mm -hmm. I think it was sort of touched on a little bit by the previous panel. Somebody sort of made the yeah. joke, you know, there, everybody's realizing they don't want to live in Los Angeles. <laughs> but as somebody myself, you know, just migrated out of Los Angeles recently, and you've seen the saturation of local labor markets in places like Los Angeles. Whereas we come to the South, I mean, think about what's coming to my mind. Link is sort of monitoring that I actually was at the University of Tennessee previously. 
basically. And there's a mushroom plant in North City. And um, a lot of people are coming there, actually from Philadelphia. So it's interesting mm -hmm. getting these transnational communities that link from Guanajuato, Mexico, out to uh, Pennsylvania, down to Lenore City. Why are they coming to Lenore City? In the middle, you know, close to Knoxville, but really in the middle of nowhere. Well, in Lenore City, they're making $11 an hour. They had they had actually 401k plans. They had health insurance. This is the conditions that were much better than uh, they experienced in Pennsylvania. This was a chance, an opportunity not to be working as a farm neighbor in the fields. Um, it was essentially a new labor market. This was sort of, you know, a place where they could really make a start of it and um, make more than they had in Los Angeles. The other thing is, um, you could probably relate to this a little bit here in New Orleans. You look at housing prices mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. What is it? A one-bedroom apartment. I have some Angelinos in here. A one-bedroom apartment. What's it going for right now in Los Angeles? What's that? Twenty hundred. You got it exactly. I mean, and a lot of a lot of Latinos are working, you know, minimum wage jobs. And if you're paying that kind of rent in Los Angeles, that doesn't give you a lot of money. However, when you go out to Tennessee, a one-bedroom apartment on average is going to run you, ooh, maybe four hundred dollars a month. That leaves an awful lot of money left over. So even if you look at sort of wage differentials, they're making slightly more in places like, you know, in, in Lenore City, Tennessee, but that translates into an awful lot more um, disposable income because of cost of living. So definitely cost of living um, opportunities and also very important have been um, middlemen. And that's also been, that was huge in bringing mm -hmm. Latino labor to New Orleans after the storm was the role that subcontractors were playing. But in Tennessee, you have firms like all the way across the street. All you need to do if you're working at you know Tyson Chicken, you can call one of these companies up and say, hey, you know what, in a month, I need 200 workers, and they'll be there. So these middle brands have also providing opportunities for places in the middle of nowhere, you know, Lenore City, Tennessee, to recruit um, Latino labor very, very quickly, and also transform local communities very, very quickly. That was something that came up earlier. What has been sort of different about immigration in this new era is the rapidity with which we've been seeing change mm -hmm. happening. I mean, New Orleans, of course, is the, the sort of very, the, the obvious example, but you've had these kind of rapid community transformations all the way across the South. So I want to expand on that in particular, um, and I'll, I'll throw this off to all the panelists. Um, clearly, population and their needs drive a lot of the social justice agenda in every city. In particular in the South, when you're talking about voting rights, you're talking about the, the labor movements, particularly during King's era, where you're talking about civil rights, right? These things sort of were driven around a black agenda, mm. right? And these things were real, right? So when new, new folks come into town, how adaptable hmm. are those structures to those new, new folks? And you may want to just talk about um, if folks want to, um, to bring in um, new blood into their organizations, you can name um, the, the classic civil rights organization, NAACP, mm -hmm. Urban League, so on and so forth, but in the main, how is that infrastructure that's created by population impacted when new populations come in? And any, in, in, in 
So anyone can grab a hold. Well, I mean, this is, this is a, the classic question facing immigrant rights or immigrant advocacy groups and civil rights organizations in the South of how much can the, the, sort of the playbook of the civil rights movement be drawn on. And we've, we see a lot of examples. In 2003, there was the Immigrant Workers Freedom Ride, where they, they literally mapped onto the geography of the original, the original Freedom Ride. Um, you see instances where um, we talked about this before we all came together of um, something like um, the legal definition of what minority means in different state contexts uh, and the way that, that state contracts have minority set-asides that come out of much, much political struggle from African-American communities and organizations in the South. What does it mean when Latino business owners in places like Memphis, uh, I have a, I'm working on a project about this with a colleague, come in and want to redefine what it means to be a minority to include the category Latino or Hispanic or however you want to define that as being defined as a minority in the state and therefore eligible for these, these, these set-asides that, that came out of this political struggle. And this really, I mean, this is the question of how much can we translate these things. Are the sites that were so symbolic to the civil rights movement, downtown spaces, spaces of consumption, um, where a lot of the, um, the political activism focused in the civil rights movement, do they carry the same symbolic currency for an immigrant rights movement? Or is it different spaces? Because if you look in at what sites are being contested over an immigrant presence, it is the workplace, but it's also things like your neighbor, it's the neighborhood, it's these very intimate spaces of social reproduction, and that is a different geography. And then if we think about that, what sorts of political activism or activities come out of that different geography, which is, which is different from the geography of activism that we saw in the civil rights movement? Laura Yeah, uh, one of the things that um, I wanted to add is that in some places it, it, there's a lag. Like, for example, in, in Greenville, South Carolina, one of the main cities that I studied, we haven't seen that as taking a lot of momentum yet. I, I think that is developing very quickly after the, the economic recession. Mm -hmm. But um, initially, the, the sentiments took a while to crystallize. And I think that sort of uh, influenced the, the slow response of some of the uh, civic activist or, or activist organizations. But um, where we saw some, or where my research, uh, sh uh, where I, my findings show that some of the the responses were more at the individual level. Mm -hmm. And what happened is that people felt prevented uh, or, so, or hand, handcuffed in terms of the resources that were available to them to take action. Um, in particular, I'm talking in, uh, about a case that I documented in which Latino immigrants were brought in as replacements of African-American workers in a large factory. And in this case, people were not uh, the, the African-American workers that were losing their jobs were not feeling that they, they could do anything. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to react. They didn't know what was the organization they should contact to in terms of reporting this, this case of discrimination. So it, it's taking a while for people to know what is happening on the ground. And no, I, I can the, stop here because I think there's a question in the back. And I, and I just want to follow up quickly. Do you think there was a capacity issue in terms of organizations and advocates that um, may or may not uh, were on the ground to deal with that issue? Or is there, is there a possibility that there was a power struggle between the advocacy mm. groups to, to, 
to get certain workers to talk a little bit, wrap some words around those issues. I'll, I'll give my best. But um, I, I think that, that in part is because a lot of these dynamics are not very well known. Okay. I think that we know that this happens, that this replacement and displacement processes happen but we don't know exactly how they happen. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to gather evidence mm -hmm. uh, in order to make a case. And I think that that sort of puts um, groups in, in, a, in a difficult situation because they need to provide this kind of evidence. And if you talk to an employer, they're gonna say, oh no, I, I'm using a contract labor agency and I'm not doing this mm -hmm. kind of thing. Uh, but when you talk to, to, to a middleman, which was what I was, it, well, that was the role that I had in this factory, then it, it's an open discriminatory process that is happening there. But you have to see it on the ground. Uh, it's very difficult to document this mm -hmm. because people are not going to agree that this is happening. Just as a, a break, I, I, do we have another microphone? Because I want um, audience participation and we're going to incur that in just a second. Um, Anita, I, I wanted to ask, a, a is there a cultural and political imperative to claim space mm. in, um, in a, in a um, community? Because what I'm hearing is the, um, the symbolism around everything from statues to mm -hmm. um, certain areas of town. There's some, something in every community that people are drawn to. And, and at some point, I mean, I just, I just, I mean, talk a little bit. I mean, the, you know, in terms of demographics, going to see, do they mobilize around certain areas and, and things? Well, I, I guess I can sort of maybe talk talk about to that tangentially. Right. Is is sort of you know a lot of the work that I've been doing has been on like, undocumented immigrants here in New Orleans and sort of did an interview with like 200 plus. Um, workers who came here post Katrina. And what I would say is that as an undocumented person, your access to public space is very, very limited. Mm -hmm. I've done interviews with people in Kenner and Metairie who've never, they've, they've been in New Orleans maybe three or four months. They've never been to the French Quarter because they were so afraid mm -hmm. of being discovered. I mean, I sort of talked to people in, new, in the laundromat. I did, I did my interviews in the laundromat, so it turned out to be the best place. You're captured. You can't get away from me and ask me, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> You know, me, you know, I sort of consider myself completely harmless. Of course, I, I'm not, you know, sort of in, in terms of race and how people might perceive me. But so in terms of, you know, especially the workers, I would guess that a majority, and in, in my study, the majority of the workers coming to New Orleans post-Katrina were undocumented. And as undocumented peoples, you can't claim public space. Mm -hmm. To claim public space exposes you and put you at the risk of deportation, even even going for work. I mean, people take a tremendous risk by going to these places like Home Depot, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're certainly circle for a while is where a lot of people went. Um, so even that aspect of sort of, I mean, that's that's as much risk as I think a lot of people are willing to take. So I think you're right, and I think what's neat about this city too, and I, it was great that in the previous presentation, a lot of people brought up the history, the Hispanic history of the city, and you see that marked in the space of the city. I mean, there's sort of a number of statues, I think Simón de Bolívar, um, yeah, right, there, there are a number of statues, monuments to the relationship of the city with, yeah, with, with, um, you know, with Latin America, mm -hmm. that sort of claims some Hispanic space in the city. But in terms of what you're saying, I think because of the undocumented status, you 
don't see as much as you might. You know, people had, um, you know, if, if immigration reform were to happen, you might see a real change. There. Do, you, do you want to jump on that? Well, or, I mean, uh, this question back here. I, I can jump yeah. in. Or, you know, this is a this is a question a colleague and I were, were if you look across the South, in about 2005, late 2005, there's almost a sea change in attitude toward immigration. It, I go from speaking at conferences about opening doors to the Hispanic community to um, there's a demagnetized Tennessee movement. Georgia becomes the, the, the nation's model of how to create state-level legislation to try to exclude undocumented immigrants. And, and we were we were trying to get our heads around what's going on, and part of it is wrapped up with that shift in schools of, of sort of the, the redefinition of, of immigrants from temporary labor to, you know, potentially permanent community members. So we started to look at what, when, when long-term residents react negatively to an immigrant presence, to what are they reacting? Because much of what we think we know about immigration says it is about the labor market, it's about wages, that it's economically driven, and, that, and there's an element of that. But we started looking at what people were reacting to, and it was very much about these symbolic spaces. So there's a, there's a, flat, there's a Mexican flag being flown at the, the house across the street from me. Um, my community is under siege, I need to defend my country. So this slippage between defending your neighborhood and, and some sort of notion of, of national heritage or national security, it was very much these sort of symbolic, very intimate spaces of daily life that were, were being reiterated over and over and over, much more so than that this is sort of an economically driven um, reaction. So I think particularly in the context of the South where language of heritage carries all these different connotations, those spaces and those sites really matter in terms of trying to get our heads around what kinds of progressive politics could, could react, could work against some of the more negative things that we're seeing. I'd like you all to just, my name is Marva. Hello, Marva. Hello. <laughs> I'd like you all to uh, comment, uh, and this gets to the symbolic spaces that you, you're asking about. And that's uh, on the, um, what I perceive as a resurgence of, of claiming who we are um, as it and as it's represented by a Confederate flag mm. or who we are as it's represented by my um, participation in the Daughters of the Miracle Revolution or who we are as it's represented by people who belong to there are closed clubs in this city that I would never I'll never be able to have access to so if you can just comment a little bit on that as a uh, reflection of Perhaps a, a backlash. I don't know if you, you see this as a backlash in your work, or if you see this as part of uh, a, a, a closing ranks mm. uh, among groups. You want anybody want to take that on? Yeah. I think you make a very interesting yeah. point. I'll just say, yeah. my field work tends to be not with the people who work. <laughs> I've been talking to you, but, but I, I think you're right. You know, I'm sort of nodding my head and saying, yes, mm -hmm. I think you are seeing that kind of reaction. Well, I mean, on the very least, have you seen from political actors, mayors, um, legislators who have said, I mean, obviously <laughs> I want to say Negan, Negan's quote, which was brought up in the beginning mm -hmm. around um, not having undocumented workers come into the city, but in your experience, do you see uh, a backlash from um, elected officials and other folks whose political stake may be at risk if, um, if social justice, larger social justice issues are brought to the forefront? 
this is when more recent issues here in Louisiana, the fact that they don't want to have a documented workers' council. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Which... Yeah, I mean, that's, if that isn't closing the ranks, I don't... Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, if you look at the 2006 elections, you have people in Alabama running on the, um, on the issue of that the border is a local issue. And that was, that was new, and that was a real sea change. And so many of the exclusions you're pointing to clearly predate immigration, but, but, those, but the kind of anti-immigrant sentiment dovetails quite neatly in very dangerous ways with those, those groups such that a lot of um, what would be considered, what a lot of folks would consider hate organizations in the South suddenly become deeply anti-immigrant as well. Um, and, and immigration becomes a way, I mean, especially through the language of cultural difference and this issue of legality, it becomes a way to make an argument about race outside a language of race. So if you look across Tennessee, I was stunned when I was doing field work there, people who were, uh, uh, politicians who, were, who seemed to be filming their political ads at the border. Like they very much, pulled up this symbolism, we have to defend the border, and they mean defend it locally in local communities, because it becomes kind of a rallying point. I mean, it, pull, it gets pulled into the, the very kind of exclusionary politics you're talking about. So certainly those two things kind of dovetail in a very um, dangerous way. We have a question right there. Center here. Okay, my name is Martina Davis, and I had a question kind of relating to something you guys have already talked about, and it's this idea of like political advocacy um, surrounding immigrants. And for me, it's interesting in New Orleans, because I just started working for Metro, which is, uh, um, or volunteering for Metro, which is an organization that does a lot of domestic abuse and um, sexual assault advocacy work, but they've started um, doing more human trafficking and mm. issues related to immigrant communities. And you have Covenant House, which is, you know, a couple blocks down, which and a lot of other health organizations which have done a lot of outreach, or started to do a lot of outreach surrounding Spanish-speaking populations. And for me, it seems like the social service organizations in the community seem to be having more of a response to immigrant concerns and uh, needs, but then the issue there becomes that they can't really do any politically, any political advocacy because they're either getting government funding or they're you know, nonprofits or NGOs. And so, how does that really, um, do you guys have any comments on how that uh, lessens the more political advocacy that they can do that the social or social service organizations can only really handle the services um, related to the population but can't speak on a legislative or kind of political um, level? Well, you know, and, and that's interesting. So when you're in the laundromats, right? Did those immigrants receive social services mm. from a umbrella organization, or was it the Workers' Justice Center that came in, or was it a, a particular organization that just worked exclusively with immigrants, or was it a, a larger organization? Um, a lot of the workers that I spoke to weren't receiving. Oh, working. Yeah. I mean, I was funny actually. I think this is changing, but I actually even went to one of the downtown hospitals here, walked in the door and sort of said, you know, I want to talk to somebody about, you know, what's going on. And I eventually got brought to the person who knows everything, somebody in human resources. And I said, okay, what's going on in terms of, um, you know, especially undocumented, like, you know, receiving healthcare services? Like, I don't know where you're going. Mm -hmm. like, I know they're getting hurt, but they're not coming to this hospital. Um, so, 
a lot of people that I, you know, and they were getting their help. You know, I asked them, what happens if you get, I had a question in the survey, that said, what happens if you get injured? What happens if you get hurt? Who is going to take care of you? And, you know, for a lot of people, uh, it was my friends, my family, mm -hmm. my boss, a serving number of people um, refer to their boss. But I, but I want to sort of bring up, you know, the issue that you're bringing up, I think, you know, in terms of social services and being able to offer, you know, in a sense, take care of this population when you can't because they, they aren't citizens. This speaks to a larger issue, which is that process of immigration reform, the failure of immigration reform, what that's doing is, as a geographer, I really look at the fact that that's really impacting particular places. It's impacting particular places where you have large concentrations of undocumented immigrants. So we're really seeing the effects are in, in some more likely ones. What's, I'm sort of bringing up a bigger issue, which is that, you know, what it means to be an immigrant in this country is changing. In particular places, like New Orleans, my guess, I mean, this is sort of figures from Tennessee, for example, and this is coming from Pew Hispanic Center. An estimated majority of the foreign born are undocumented. We are changing what it means to be an immigrant in this country. And to the detriment, you know, both of the immigrants themselves, but also the communities. Because one of the fantasies that people have is that if we make policy, that if we make the lives of people here miserable enough, then they will eventually go home. But guess what? This is 5% of the US workforce. This is 12 million people. They are not going to go home. So that then sort of, if you change the debate, these people are going to stay here. What makes sense as a policy for our community and for these people is, my goodness, give them opportunities to reinvest here. If they need social services, if they need education, my goodness, give them the opportunity to get a college degree. Right now, if you are in this country, you came to this, and sort of people that I've interviewed, you know, they're brought to this country at the age of four, they go through this, they, um, you know, as an undocumented immigrant, they can't go to college. They can't, I mean, this is, you know, millions of, you know, sort of in the millions, it's estimated, of um, young people in this country. You know, so, so, so the question of sort of, uh, you know, communities like New Orleans are in a sense hostage to what's going on in terms of immigration reform at the national level. Well, see, scholars aren't supposed to be passionate. We're supposed to be <laughs> dispassionate scholars. We're supposed to talk like this, cross our legs. <laughs> but I don't want to lose this sight, because there, there is an important question in there that I think Laura can add to, mm -hmm. is a, in terms of Latinas in the mm -hmm. workforce, yeah, and, the, and, and someone going to your point, how is that also changing the nature of, uh, nature of civil rights in terms of gender-based mm -hmm. rights, specifically? Yeah. What's going on in terms of the workforce for, for Latinas? I was very surprised to find and significant number of Latina females as uh, active members of the workforce in a place like South Carolina. And, uh, and I, you know, like uh, Anita, I also spent a lot of time in laundromats <laughs> and <laughs> interviewed about uh, nearly 300 people, Latinos, African-Americans, and whites. And um, I actually was able to sort of um, pr gather evidence of their incorporation in the labor force. Uh, one thing that is happening, which hasn't been brought up in this discussion, is that um, a lot of the jobs that Latinos or, uh, or immigrants often take are in industries that are, have become very feminized. Mm. Uh, and in particular, in, in the industries where I ended up being an insider because I actually was doing the jobs that an immigrant will do, um, they, the majority of the, the people working there were white females 
or a mix of African American and white, African American females and males. Uh, so his uh, Latino males were systematically being brought in to replace African Americans in uh, African Americans in general. Mm. But the people that stayed in these kinds of places tended to be Hispanic females. It's sort of a complicated story. But what happens is that uh, Af uh, Hispanic males have a lot more options mm -hmm. than Hispanic females do. So for a Hispanic male, uh, in, in, in the particular context I'm describing, which is Greenville, South Carolina, uh, they could go into construction jobs, which pay about uh, $13 an hour, whereas in the kind of factory work that I'm talking about, you will make about $8.25 per hour. So um, as we know, uh, construction jobs are also gendered, and mm -hmm. females, Hispanic females, were prevented from accessing those jobs. So they sort of stayed in the manufacturing sector. Um, another uh, kind of dynamic happening here is the fact that many of these uh, females were also invisible. So part of being a, a ghost employee mm. is being in places where you are not giving a face to the public. And this is what we find in places like manufacturing. Um, so what happens often, or, or I mean not often, I'm, I'm talking about a specific case actually, but in this particular case, uh, females ended up replacing uh, the, the male workers that managers wanted to hire. So gender dynamics are some, also an important factor that we sort of need to consider mm -hmm. when we're talking about immigration and the labor force. And this is also, also transpiring in neighborhoods. Uh, I was surprised to find uh, a significant number of females migrating, migra migrating now on their own. And we yeah. have now two different, we're talking about two kinds of Im immigrant mm -hmm movement here. We're talking about immigrants who are primary migrants, who are coming directly from places from Mexico, which often are cases of new, new sending communities. Mm -hmm. So we have Oaxaca and, uh, and small towns in Veracruz and, and um, Hidalgo, uh, Durango, who were not places that had a, a, large, mm -hmm. a, a large exodus of Mexican immigrants. So now we have new sending communities, new immigrants in these new destinations, but we also have secondary migrants. And the secondary migrants and, and primary migrants are creating very important dynamics. And in the, the primary migrants, we have females and we have males. In some cases, females uh, immigrate on their own. Mm -hmm. In some cases, they are meeting some of the males that were in the area and are starting families there. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of bringing a lot of new issues in terms of providing services, like it was raised earlier. And now we have a new avenue, uh, which is now that I have a child, I am entitled to go to WIC and get uh, food stamps or get uh, other services. Uh, so it's sort of just adding to this very complex mm -hmm. kind of dynamic that we have described before, but, uh, but this is sort of, of how gender is playing out, not only in the labor place, but also in, in neighborhoods, because the females migrating, migrating on their own. Now we had a large earlier pool of Mexican immigrants in there, uh, and we start uh, creating families. Another important issue here is that Hispanic females are seen as potential romantic partners, mm. in my cases, for African-American males which is sort of complicating the, the dynamics between 
uh, <laughs> African-American males and females. So this is just something to add to the um, uh, discussion that we have earlier on mm. in terms of where the color line is going. Mm. Uh, in, in the particular case of this uh, factory that I was talking about earlier, African-American males were very much in favor of bringing in Hispanic females. They liked working with them, they, they felt comfortable with, with the Mexican ladies, you know, all smiling <laughs> on, I'm sorry I'm stereotyping here, but, but they were happy with them. Uh, which was something that was not perceived as very favorable for African-American females, which ended up exiting the labor mm. force in that particular case, and, and also added a little bit more to this uh, tension existing between females mm -hmm. right there. Now we have a question right here. Uh, yeah, yeah, my name is Juan. Uh, I work in New Orleans. I'm part of a group that's uh, been formed. It's an over-year-old cause of the Black-Brown Forum. And we've been kind of building up a process to be able to sort of begin to address the issues in the, in the tensions. Um, the comment about nonprofit groups not being able to lobby and act politically is, is you can do it. Nonprofit groups can act politically. There's, there's certain IRS rules around that, but they're pretty straightforward. And, but you can, do, you can actually act politically, upfront politically. And, and so don't be constrained. Uh, my comment is about the immigrant, anti-immigrant feeling in the South. Now, the Klan, after, after Reconstruction and after terrorizing blacks, started terrorizing immigrants and Catholics and Jews in the South and throughout this country. So is, is there some parallel between that period, so like, so probably about the 1880s to actually into the, into the 50s, about terrorizing immigrants, Catholics, and Jews, as well as blacks? That's one thing. And so is there, there's a, it's a, that's the history of the South. Mm. As part of that, uh, part of that process of oppressing anybody who isn't like us or like them, in my case. Uh, and the other part, the other question is: um, there, there are some positive points. You know, like in Nashville, Nashville did not go with the English only mm -hmm. thing, mm -hmm. and kind of talk about that in comparison to this process of like this anti-anti hysteria. Mm -hmm. Because, in, for instance, the, the whole thing about Vitter not counting. Uh, uh, undocumented, they backed off of mm -hmm. that and they decided not, they withdrew that amendment. Mm -hmm. But in, in Louisiana, uh, we had, a couple of years ago, we had it up, the, the state legislature was looking at laws, anti-immigrant laws, and through, through a good offices of the Catholic Church and the folks, we were able to stop them. And this, this last year, nothing came up mm -hmm. around that. There's no support from the Black Caucus. Mm -hmm. and, and, and exactly, support from the mm -hmm. Black Caucus on that too, so there were no, no mm -hmm. anti-immigrant bills legislature last year. So, given that that, that, mm -hmm. have that dynamic is happening, talking about this history of anti-outsider, mm -hmm. and also talking about the, the uh, opportunities for hope. Well, I'll, I can speak to the latter question uh, first. You know, one of the interesting things about, um, you know, so the classic example of, of Nashville voting down the English-only ordinance. Uh, and if you look at, at how that played out, and it's not just in Nashville, you know, one of the things about southern cities is the South in general is very dependent on foreign direct investment. And southern cities want to be seen as international cities that um, are good investment sites. And here we do hearken back to some of the elements of the civil rights movement. So you can, and, and, and groups have made the argument that things like an English-only ordinance is bad for business. It makes a city look backwards. It makes a city look regressive. 
Uh, and so in the context of this, you see this in Arkansas, where you had very weird politics coming out of um, uh, harsh anti-immigrant stances at the same time that they wanted to provide prenatal care for undocumented women around right to life. And so you get pro-business, pro-life politics coming together in a way that sort of produced these, un these un um, unexpected moments of possibility in a city like Nashville in response to this to the English only ordinance you had business groups who were coming together and saying this is about how we spin the city you had social justice groups coming about and say, coming together and saying you know this is um, this is unethical this is problematic there are all these reasons we want to we want to work against this and so you do have these these moments of hope because in many ways this is an unfinished story you know we talk a lot about black brown tension but Paula's work is an exception She's at the cutting edge of a lot of this. Much of what we think we know about how these relations are playing out is based on anecdotal information. It's based on what we think we get from newspaper reports. We don't really know what these relations look like on the ground. We have this sense that we see some tensions, but there's often a big disjuncture between what we see and hear in public discourse and what it looks like in particular neighborhoods. And that's, some, that's another site of hope. And so some work I'd done in Nashville a few years ago if I looked at what was going on in public discourse from community leaders, all these different perspectives, you got the sense that immigration had fundamentally reconfigured the city, that it had reconfigured how social services worked out, all of these things, there were all these tensions. Well, then I spent some time at a bunch of work sites hanging out in hotel basements and fast food restaurants in this, these kind of workplaces where you'd had these very rapid transitions and the sense of what this process of change looked like was very different if you cleaned hotel rooms. So you couldn't talk to your coworker, but you still had to clean the same number of rooms. Your daily tasks still looked the same. So there was just this kind of everydayness of these changes. And it's important to think at these different scales because especially at the kind of everyday, there are those moments of possibility that we have to figure out how to mobilize. Now, I want to just pick up on something the last panel um, touched upon. Let's expand on it. Are there, where are those areas where folks can mobilize around? What are the key um, items? Because clearly, when, uh, from a 30-foot level, you think education is something we can all agree upon, public education, funding. Uh, we can all agree upon um, health care um, reform to a certain extent. We can all agree on criminal justice reform, but are there specific policies that, in particular around um, black, Asian, white, Latino groups can really mobilize and or strategize around? There's gotta be some. <laughs> there, there, has, there has to be. I, I think that, you know, as surprising as this might be, I think that the labor context might not be the wrong place to start. Okay. I think that the fact that hiring practices have gone unchecked and that we don't have unions in some of these workplaces we're talking about uh, sort of create barriers for coalition building. And, um, and I think that one of the things that I've observed is that People want uh, better working conditions, Latinos, Asians, African Americans. They don't want a fa fast production line. I mean, you can't work in a place where you just have one 15-minute break and a 30-minute lunch break 
one 15 minute break to go to the bathroom, a 30 minute uh, break to, to, to have breakfast in a cafeteria that is 10 minutes from your uh, 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 section in the, in the assembly line, and then you have to come back and put your gloves and all your gear and be ready. So you practically have, what, like 10, 15 minutes in, in an eight hour shift I think that people want to have space where they can talk to each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of the strategy that, that many employers are, are using is just putting groups against one another. Mm -hmm. So when we have this divide and conquer kind of strategy, then it's, it's already embedded in the system if we don't check our hire practi hiring practices. So I think that employer employment sites might be those places where we can start by looking at what our workplaces look like and, and by checking our hiring practices and the mechanisms that enable systems of discrimination or reproduce inequality within the workplace. So I see a bunch of young people in the audience. Give us a couple more areas where they can mobilize folks, communities to, to deal with these, these issues. I would say it's also, you can't underestimate the schools. So if you look across southern schools right now, you've got you know, high schoolers um, for whom the, their communities look very different. Many of the, you're talking about immigrant students, the, the sort of lo the long-term residents or native-born children grew up in a community that looked very different. Middle school is a mix, but those elementary school classrooms are filled with children for whom Nashville has always been multicultural. Atlanta has always looked this way. Dalton has always looked. That is what they know, and that is a radical difference from what their parents know, from what the school teachers know, and, and that creates the potential for, all, for, for a literal rethinking of what these relations look like. You know, that, that cohort is going to grow up with a completely different set of experiences, and we just don't know, we don't know how that's going to play out, but we can't underestimate this sort of new generation, I think, that's coming up through the schools. They're about eight right now. I have a question here in the center. Hi, um, I have a my name's Lorena. Um, I actually work with the day labor population here in New Orleans. I've mm -hmm. um, been doing that for over a year now. And um, I'm interested particularly um, in Lagos and wondering what, um, how African Americans and Latinos, how they understand the undergirding structure of systemic racism. Mm -hmm. um, how do they react to this replacement? How do, do Latinos understand that they're being used as replacements? How do um, African Americans and Latinos then um, either coalesce or not? Um, Thank you for the question. I, 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 you know, one thing that I said earlier was that some of the attitudes take time to crystallize. Mm -hmm. And I think that it took time for people to realize what was going on. And, um, and at first, people thought it was unfair. Um, and when they found out that the people in this particular plant were undocumented, and, and this came up not as a result of them uh, asking other workers, but as a result of the immigrant marches of uh, May of 2006, mm. if I'm not mistaken. So that sort of brought about all these new questions. And these questions came up in the workplace. Are you undocumented and, th mm -hmm. and uh, do you have a green card or you don't? And once people found out that the majority of their coworkers were undocumented, and I'm talking about uh, primarily African-Americans finding out that they, that they were working with undocumented um, uh, Mexican immigrants for the most part, 
they started questioning the process of how the people that were leaving were mainly African Americans and that they were losing their jobs to this new uh, workforce. Uh, but they still were sort of uh, rationalizing it in a way that, well, they're hardworking and they saw them working as hard as they did. Uh, they're here for the same uh, reasons and they have the same motivations that we did. And so it was something that I learned from Professor uh, Paula McLean that she calls it this sense of faith. You know, we're on the same boat here. Uh, but that changed over time. Uh, and that changed as things got harder, as, as, uh, especially as the economic situation mm -hmm. hit harder in some of these places, where they started feeling like, you know what, no, this is not right. Uh, I, 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 I think that these people are here for the right reasons, but I still need to get a job, and I still, you know, we're still competing for the same work. Uh, some of them reported that they called the immigration service, but nobody answered. Uh, they found that some of them were doing even experiments uh, and just saying that they were calling to employment places to find out if they sounded Hispanic, if they would get the, the job, to try to report it and gather evidence. And, and again, you know, it was really hard for them to show that this was going on. So their reaction was a lot more intense and it was like, you know, this is upsetting. But again, it's like there were very little resources for them in terms of, of an actual action. It was more just that they, they kept their anger to themselves in, in some ways. Um, and, and it was kind of a, a sort of a, a frustration because they respected the people they work with, but at the same time, they didn't think that what was going on, it was right. So it was, comp it was not something that they just wanted to, you know, feel like, oh, they should be sent back to their country or anything like that. It was just, this is not right and we need to do something about it, but we can't. We don't have a recourse for this. We're going to actually take one question. I'm going to have you um, close out. I'm sorry. Okay. Hi. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here and taking our questions. Um, I have a, a couple of, uh, well, a comment and a question. My comment is just um, at, at a street level between uh, Latino, between undocumented workers and the black community, my observations have been that the black community have been very receptive to all beings, regardless of their status or whether they're legal or not legal, but that there is a language barrier. Mm -hmm. And that some of the places that I go to, I see black, you know, my black friends saying to Hispanic people, you know, they're like, hola, you know, my friends. <laughs> and it ends there because they don't have any other way of communicating, but they are receptive. Um, and I, I have yet to see any Latinos on the second line. I mean, at least Latinos that are not, haven't, haven't grown up in New Orleans. He's there. Um, and, <laughs> I, and, and I would like to see more of that. And I actually, we, we held up the Committee to Rio Charity Hospital, and we had our own uh, rallying second line not long ago. And I talked to some Latinos while I was flyering, and they really wanted to come, and I told them where it was as best as I could. They didn't show up, and I'm, I know they really wanted to go, but they just didn't go because they didn't feel the spirit of community behind them. And on that, um, on that uh, subject, also when I first came back to New Orleans after the storm, I was in Memphis in exile. When I first came back, I saw a lot of news reports about black on brown gangs and so on, one against the other, whatever. 
and from the best I can discern was it was really there were black gangs, but they were they were ganging up on you know eight people living in a trailer. It wasn't like brown gangs against black gangs. It was an artificial division that was being created by the media and maybe some um, provocative sources. Who knows what? But um, but my question. Um, oh. oh my question is, uh, you, were, you were saying about um, black men being receptive to Mexican women and so on. How does ICE view that in terms of interracial marriages and so on? Um, are these people trying to get married to stay? And if they are, like my understanding is through that ICE are really not receptive to interracial marriage and that it's easier to come here as an undocumented immigrant or as an illegal immigrant if you're going to get married to marry into the same race. How, uh, I'm sorry, how does ICE, uh, ICE, how, how does ICE see interracial marriage, marriages? Are they, I mean, the, the black men that are Coveting Mexican and Latino <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. women. No, no, no. I are they getting married or they're just coveting? No, 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 no. And and I'm glad that you asked that question because I think that what was talked about in the first panel, it's sort of uh, in terms of uh, of the attitudes of Latinos towards African Americans is relevant in this case. I think that in the case of of Latinos, they don't see themselves as as they don't see African Americans as potential roman romantic partners, and and I'm you know I'm still analyzing my data, so this is prelimi preliminary, but but based on, on the analysis of, analysis that I conducted, I don't have the sense that La uh, Latinos respond positively to that mm -hmm. attention. They respond positively. You know, in the sense that they have better working conditions, mm -hmm. that they have people they work with, and that they feel, you know, uh, comfortable <laughs> getting the attention. But I don't see this as transpiring in terms of a long-term process. What I have seen uh, in the South is, uh, uh, and I don't have the figures with me, but just anecdotally, a lot more black, white intermarriage or, or interdating. Mm -hmm. But you don't see that uh, prolonging beyond the, the working conditions that I described in terms of Latinos, African Americans. Now, and before we close, I just wanted to say thank you for allowing me to read your wonderful papers. <laughs> right? These are some serious, serious scholars. If you if you get a chance, get their card, get their information. They are brilliant, <laughs> right? And and not to say too much, but it's. It's a feat for all for women. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that we're we're still a dearth of women in PhD programs. So go out and get your PhD and and do great things because they're doing the type of scholar activism I th I would like to say <laughs> that is helpful for the greater good of, of the community. And so I just wanted to thank them oh, thank and you. because they're doing I mean they're in the laundromats and the factory. <laughs> they're doing serious serious work. So I just wanted to say that and, and to thank everyone for coming out and, 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 and staying throughout the evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.